Well, good evening, ABC College. Hope you are doing well again on this Wednesday. Thanks yet again for joining us for CORE, our theology and doctrine study that we're doing this summer. Hope you guys are doing great. Uh, it's hard to believe that it's already July. Um, the 4th was just this past weekend. Hope you guys had a great 4th. Um, but man, July is here, which means that we're you know, only a few weeks, really, uh, maybe a little bit more than a month away from uh, the fall semester starting again. So um, that's an exciting thing. I know there's lots of questions involved in that. Uh, I have questions too. Um, but either way, we're really looking forward to seeing you guys uh, pretty soon uh, back in the fall. And here soon enough, we'll be sending out some info uh, about things for that. Um, we're working on plans uh, right now, but know that we miss you guys a whole bunch. And it's been great to see a couple of you uh, around here on Sundays, things like that. But we're looking forward to having a lot of you back uh, here pretty soon. Um, our church, we're ready to have uh, more college students around again. Uh, but anyway, hope you guys are doing well. If you've been keeping up with us the past uh, few weeks of this study, you know we've been talking about for the past few weeks, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We spent two weeks on the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit. And this week, we're moving into a uh, kind of another section of theology that's very important, uh, talking about the doctrine of salvation. Uh, what do we believe as Christians about salvation? And even what does it mean to be saved? So for the next two weeks, we're going to talk just about that, about salvation. Tonight, we're going to talk about what it means to be saved, uh, what that phrase even means that we use in the church a lot. And then next week, we'll talk about some different aspects or you know stages, if you will, of salvation, uh, specifically the ones that Paul uses, talking about justification, sanctification, and glorification. So uh, looking forward to these next few weeks. But for tonight, like I said, we're going to talk about that phrase, you know, being saved. You know, what does that mean? You know, we use that a lot in the church. You probably have heard that. You may have a story of how you were saved. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, let's unpack that tonight. Uh, really what we mean when we say that phrase, get saved, is that we are saying that we responded to the gospel, that we believed in the truth of the gospel, and that we were saved from our sin uh, by God through the work of Christ, that that truth was brought to us through the Holy Spirit, which kind of ties in a lot of things we've talked about so far. Um, but while that is what we mean when we say we get saved, let's get a little bit more under the surface about those things uh, tonight. But before we do that, if salvation, if getting saved, means that we respond to the truth of the gospel, before we move on for the rest of our time tonight, I think it's really important to reflect even on what do we mean when we say gospel. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here tonight for sake of our video length, but let's just refresh for just a moment. What is the gospel? Uh, what does that mean? What are we responding to? We've talked about this in pieces throughout our study so far, but the gospel we can say is this. It's, it's a simple message, and I like to boil it down into four simple words. If you know me, you know what I'm about to say. The gospel is four words. It's God, man, Christ, response. The gospel says those four things. So what I mean by God, well, the, the gospel first teaches us that there is a God who is eternal, holy, righteous, loving, good, and all-powerful, that he created everything in the universe for his glory, and he has authority over everything, that we as humans have been made in his image to bring him glory, and that God is holy and perfect, meaning he can't tolerate rebellion against him, uh, against, which is sin, is what rebellion really is, is, uh, is sin. So that's who God is. Then man, so God, man. So man, you know, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we are made in God's image, but we chose to sin. Uh, that Genesis 3 shows us that 
not only did Adam and Eve, but all of us has cho- have chosen to rebel against God and against His authority. And because that rebellion is essentially treason against the king of the universe, we deserve the penalty for that treason, which is death, not just physically, but eternally by being separated from God. That we're sinners, like we talked about earlier, in both our nature and our actions. That sin isn't just a mistake, and sins aren't just mistakes that we make, but they're really rebellion against God's authority in our lives. And because of our sin, we deserve punishment. We deserve eternal punishment uh, in hell and separation from God forever. And that's the bad news of the message of the gospel. That's God and man. But what about Christ? Well, like we talked about for the past few weeks, that God's solution to our sin problem is the sacrificial death, the resurrection, and the victorious life of Jesus in our place. That Christ's death is the salvation for our sin problem. And Jesus came to earth and he lived that perfect life that we could never live. He died in in our place on the cross, and He was resurrected on the third day to show His power over sin and death. And it's that gospel message, that work of Christ, that enables us to respond, which is the fourth part of the gospel. It's God, man, Christ response. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how do we respond to the gospel. We talk about being saved. Well, what does that response look like? There's a lot of misconceptions even in the church of what that response looks like. Is it just walk in an aisle and praying a prayer, or is it something much more? So let's talk about that. When we break this down, the easiest thing to do is to really think about salvation uh, in some more theological words for our conversation tonight. We're going to use the word conversion more tonight when we talk about getting saved. But even conversion can be broken down into two parts, that we have a, a active and a passive conversion. That when we get saved, there's both the active element in the passive element. And I'll unpack uh, what I mean by that. Active conversion is the act that God does where He regenerates us, where He brings us new life. And it means that we then respond to Him in repentance and faith. And that's the passive part, is that God in the act of conversion is the one who brings us new life. It's His active work. Our passive work then is to respond to God's work in our lives through repentance and faith. So there's an active and a passive element to this. So let's talk about those two kind of in pieces really quick. Uh, Let's start with the passive part. Let's talk about our end of the conversion experience. Our end of conversion, the way that we respond to the gospel is through repentance and faith. That's the believe, um, that's the response element uh, of the gospel message. So let's talk about even those two things. We're we're breaking this down a lot here, but let's talk even for a minute about faith. Let's do faith first, and then we'll talk about repentance, okay? Well, what do we mean when we say faith? You know, we say that all the time in the church, but what does it really mean to to have faith? Well, let me me give you a couple of definitions. Uh, Vine's Dictionary, a great biblical uh, language dictionary, says that faith is a firm conviction producing a full acknowledgement of God's revelation or truth, or also could be defined as a personal surrender to God. It also could be defined as a conduct inspired by such surrender. Those are all good definitions. Honestly, the first sin really was a lack of faith in God, a lack of trust in Him. And we're saved by then putting our trust, our faith in God's work for us. Uh, If you want two helpful key Old Testament passages about faith, you can look at Genesis 15 and Habakkuk 2. Genesis 15, 6 says this. It says that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That faith has this believing element that then can allow us to be righteous before God. 
And then Habakkuk 2.4 says that, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. That faith has this living element too. And the New Testament writers would even amplify and uphold the importance of faith and salvation. That Paul would even quote Habakkuk 2.4 in multiple places in his letters. That Paul quotes Habakkuk 2 in Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11. So we see that message is still very important even in the New Testament. So if the general idea then of faith is that it's a, a confidence, a trust, a belief that rests in God's work, then let's talk about three aspects of faith. That faith is first knowledge. I think we get this, but faith is not blind. You know, faith is not the Indiana Jones, you know, leap of faith bridge that it's a cool scene in the movie, but it's not the best definition of faith. You know, faith's not a leap in the dark. Faith is a knowledge of the promises of God and a deep trust that God's going to come through on those promises. That God has revealed to us His plan of salvation, His plan to send Christ all throughout the revelation of Scripture. And faith is, in one component, a knowledge and a confidence in that, tr in that truth that God has provided to us. But faith is not only knowledge, uh, because a lot of people know the information of the gospel but aren't really Christians. Faith is not just knowledge. Faith also has to be approval. You know, because James 2.19 would tell us that intellectual assent alone is not enough, but that faith has to be an acknowledgement of the truth of the gospel message. So not only is it knowing it, not only is it saying it's true, but thirdly, faith also has to be a personal trust. That saving faith, the kind of faith that produces salvation, happens when someone calls upon Christ to save them. That they internally identify Christ's death for their sin as their death. That, that they have died and Christ now lives in them, as Paul would say in Galatians. So to ask Christ to save you is to trust that forgiveness and freedom from sin is available to you through what Christ did on the cross, and it's to accept that gift. So saving faith is knowledge of the gospel message, it's a approval that it's true, and it's also a personal trust. It's receiving that gift. It's believing it's true and receiving it. But even within that, when we talk about trust, what do we even mean by that? Well, if faith is trust or reliance, what are we even relying on Christ for? Well, ultimately, when we put our faith in the work of Christ, we're relying on Him to secure us a righteous verdict before God, our judge. We'll talk more about that next week with justification. But when we trust in Christ, we're trusting for God to provide Christ's righteousness for us through Christ's work, both in His life, death, and resurrection for us. Sometimes it gets called the great exchange, that when we trust Christ to save us, this exchange takes place where all of our sin is credited to Jesus and His perfect righteousness through all that He's done is credited to us, that we are declared righteous, that we receive righteousness imputed to us. And we'll talk more about that next week. But faith in Christ is the only way that we're going to be, sa be saved from the punishment from our sin. The only way we're going to receive this righteousness. You know, every other religion in the world would tell you the way to be saved, whatever that means to them, is that you have to earn your salvation through less bad works, more good works, right thoughts, maybe meditation or other some, some other form of what you, what you do. But if we're honest, that's never going to be enough. I love the way that the reformer Martin Luther said it. He said that our hearts are hardwired for works righteousness, that we all want to be able to say that in our salvation experience, whatever religion you're talking about, that we've earned it, 
you know, that we've done enough to earn it. But honestly, you know, we talk about handouts and no one really wants to feel like they just received a handout, but salvation is the ultimate handout that we could never earn, that we simply receive the free gift of salvation, that we can never be righteous enough, that one sin alone is enough to, to, pun to justify punishment forever separated from God. That's how serious sin is. But the gift of salvation is that amazing, that it's freely given to us. We just respond in faith. That faith in putting our faith in the gospel means that we're saying that we are completely unable to save ourselves, that there's nothing we could ever do to break, break sin's power in our life. It means that we're agreeing that our hearts are full of evil and that only trusting in Christ is the way that we can get out of our current standing, that we can, that we can receive salvation and be forgiven. That, that's faith, is that it's complete reliance and trust on God to save you. It's saying that there's nothing you could ever do to get out on your own. Uh, the picture I love to think of sometimes is uh, saving faith is like a parachute. Uh, you know, many people who know enough about math and science could maybe, you know, say, look at a parachute and look at the, the math calculations, you know, the, the drag on the parachute, the size of the parachute, and figure out, okay, yeah, you know, according to math and all the engineering I've done, if I were to put this parachute on and jump out of a plane, it would save me. I could release it, the drag would be enough, it'd slow me down, I'd safely land on the ground and be fine. You know, that, that's one kind of belief, right? That's one kind of, you know, agreement on information. But it's a way different kind of belief in that parachute, right, for you to actually put the parachute on and jump out of the plane. The first kind of belief is intellectual, that we look at the numbers and say, yeah, that, that's true. The second kind is a, a trust, right? We're not only believing in the information, but we're trusting literally your whole life, right, into the hands of that parachute. That's the kind of faith we're talking about when we say faith in Christ. It's not just agreeing that, yeah, Jesus lived and died on the cross for my sin. It's not just agreement. It is a absolute you know, confidence and belief that we stick our whole lives on. Uh, I, I love the way that J.D. Greer says it. Uh, if you've you know, heard me talk about the gospel much, you've probably heard me say this. We say it a lot in our college ministry. ministry. Um, but J.D. Greer's gospel prayer is a great example of what saving faith proclaims. His gospel prayer says that in Christ, there's no good I can ever do that would make God love me more. But also in Christ, there's no bad I could ever do, no bad I've ever done that can make God love me less. There's no good we ever could do that, make God, that can make God love us more. There's no bad we would ever have ever done that can make God love us less. Because it's not based on us. That God's love for us is secure in Christ. That's the truth of the gospel. And that's the kind of belief that we're, um, that we're making and we're, we're saying whenever we put our faith in Jesus. So that's the faith element of repentance and faith. Let's talk about repentance now, because they, they go closely together. Let me give you a couple of definitions real quick of repentance, because repentance is a word we say in church, but I don't know if we define very helpfully sometimes. Uh, R.C. Sproul defined it this way. He said the word repentance comes from a Greek word metanoia. In the Greek language, it means to have a significant changing of one's mind. Generally speaking, metanoia has to do with the changing of one, one's mind with respect to one's behavior. The feeling most often associated with repentance in Scripture is that of remorse, regret, and a sense of sorrow for having acted in a particular way. Thus, repentance involves sorrow for a previous form of behavior. Wayne Grudem, the theologian, said it this way. He said, Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Those are both great definitions. So why is repentance important? Well, really, when it comes to responding to the gospel, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. That repentance is turning away from sin. 
that repentance is hating sin. It's resolving by God's strength to be done with it. You know, and so repentance then is absolutely necessary for crucial saving faith because it's a almost an expression of when we say we believe in Christ, then repentance is the obvious implication and obvious response to that statement of belief. You know, because some people might say, Yeah, I've accepted Jesus as Savior, but you know, I'm a Christian, but I haven't really accepted him as Lord yet. I haven't made him the Lord of my life. You ever heard that before? I've heard that some. But that, that, it just doesn't work that way, honestly. If someone says that, I don't really know if they're really a Christian because that's like saying you can have faith without actually having repentance as well. But faith and repentance are inseparable because to put your faith in Jesus as Savior means that you recognize Him as God and as the King of the universe who's conquered sin and death. You know, it's to submit your entire life to Him. So how can you say, yes, I recognize you, Jesus, as King, but I don't recognize you as King over me? Makes sense? If you really recognize Jesus as Lord of everything, then you have to recognize Him as Lord of your life and therefore live in the way He says, hate the things He hates, and love the things um, that He loves. You know, faith in Jesus requires us to renounce the rival power that Jesus died for, that He died to defeat, which is sin. You know, if that surrender isn't present, then very likely that true faith that saves isn't present either. As Jesus said, we can't serve two masters. We either serve ultimately sin, or we serve Christ, and we have to choose. Let's talk about three aspects of repentance for a second, though. Just like we had some aspects of faith, here's three aspects of repentance to help understand it more. The first aspect of repentance is that repentance involves a heartfelt sorrow. You know, when we repent, we recognize our sins as wrong, and we recognize that we have personally committed them. You know, part of repentance is to own our sin and to admit it that we really have sin and that it's an affront against a holy God that deserves punishment. Repentance also involves a renouncing of sin. It means that we agree with God about our sin and commit to be done with it. And also, repentance involves turning from sin, that we have a change in our life. We have a change of direction, a change of purpose, away from wanting to embrace sin and moving toward obedience in God. But before you think that you know, repentance therefore means that we always live a good life and never do bad things, that's not the biblical picture of repentance. You know, repentance is not about perfection, it's about direction. You like that? It's a preacher moment for you. But it's not about perfection, repentance is about direction. It's about taking God's side on the sin issue. I love the way R.C. Sproul says it. He says, conversion doesn't mean that we instantly jump from sin to perfection, but that our lives are fundamentally turned around. From the moment of our conversion, our lives are moving in a different direction back toward God. I like to say it sometimes that conversion, that salvation, that repentance is a change in the trajectory of our lives. That that's one of the main ways we can see that we're really a Christian is that we see a change in trajectory. You know, to be saved means that we are changed by God to love Christ and hate sin. Not that we're always perfect, not that we're always going to do the right thing, but that we see a big change in the direction that we're headed and our heart posture and even our heart attitudes and desires. If we really if we really have been saved, if we really have been changed by God and filled with the Spirit, we're going to want different things. We're going to want thing, the things of God and we're going to want to turn away from the things that God hates, namely sin and rebellion against Him. All right? Let's talk about repentance and sin even as a Christian. Like we said, repentance doesn't mean that you stop sinning. If you look at 1 John 2, 1, John says there that he's writing to his readers that they may not sin, but if they sin as Christians, then they have an advocate in Jesus. So Christians will sin sometimes. Uh, Galatians 5, 17 even makes it clear that in our bodies, there's now this spiritual war taking place between the flesh, the sinful flesh, 
in the spirit, you know, between sin and obedience. And even true repentance and truly repenting of our sin doesn't mean that we're not going to be tempted because temptation in itself is not a sin. That, that Jesus was tempted, yet he never sinned. Instead, true repentance is a change of our heart's attitude that we, like I said, hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves. I love the way that William Arnett, or Arnott says it. He says, the difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that the one has sins and the other does not, but that the one takes sides with his cherished sins against the dreaded God, and the other takes sides with the reconciled God against his hated sins. So to repent is to change sides, is to agree with God on your sin and want to be done with it, even though that's going to be a battle in our whole life to repent of sin each day. I love the way Martin Luther says it. He says all of life is repentance even. Now, the whole Christian life is to be repenting each day. So that's the first side. That's the faith and repentance. That's the way that we respond to the gospel. So if you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you tell them about who God is, about who we are in our sin, about how God has sent the solution for our sin in Christ, and the way that we respond is by repenting of our sin and putting our faith in Jesus. And you unpack what it means to repent. It means to turn away from your sin, but it means also to put your faith in Jesus, to believe that He has brought this life-saving, good news message to you now all you have to do is receive the work that he's done on your behalf. Nothing you have to do to earn it. You simply receive it like a gift and you can be forgiven of your sin and be brought back into a right relationship with God. That's how we respond to the gospel. But for just a moment before we wrap up today, let's talk about the active side of conversion, which, you know, you would think, well, we're the one doing it, so we're active, right? But no, we're really, you know, we do respond, but ultimately God is the one that saves, right? So really he's the one that has the active end of conversion. And this is something that we call regeneration sometimes in theology. So let's talk about regeneration for just a minute. Just to start with that, think about who we are before we become a Christian, before we're in Christ. We're a lot of things, but none of them are good. The Bible says that we're slaves to sin, that we're dead in sin, that we're unable to know God and understand spiritual truth, that we're enemies of God, that we're objects of God's wrath that we're blinded by Satan, that we can't see the light of the gospel of Jesus, that we're poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. Those are all pictures that the Bible paints of us in our sin before Christ. If those are all true, then that means that we, <laughs> we're first off in a pretty bad situation in our sin, but it means that we are completely unable to save ourselves, that we are dead, powerless, and how could we ever do anything to raise ourselves up back from spiritual death? How could we ever break hold of this victory and power that sin has in our life? Well, on our own, that's the bad news of the gospel, bad news of you know, the truth of sin. But the good news is that God is the one that pursues us and has the power to truly save us in a way that we never could on our own. You know, this is where the idea of regeneration or being born again comes in, that God comes and does something in our hearts that we could never do. That we need new spiritual life that can't come from ourselves, but has to come from outside ourselves. We need new spiritual life in order to be brought from spiritual death. And in salvation and in regeneration, God's Spirit comes and enables us to respond to the gospel. It enables us to understand Christ's death in our place. It enables us to be able to believe in the truth of the gospel. Uh, it gives us the capacity to, to trust God and to trust what the Bible says about Christ is true. And also in regeneration, God's Spirit bears witness with our spirit that the gospel is true and that we need to believe it and we want to believe it. 
So let me give you a quick definition real quick of regeneration. Wayne Gruden defines it this way. He says, regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. So not a real complicated definition. Um, But in repentance and faith, that's our active role in conversion. But in regeneration, like I said, this is the passive role. This is something that God does to us. This is God coming and bringing us out of death into life, something that we can't do. It's his active work. And to really see this the most clearly, I think we look. We need to look at John 3. So let's read John 3, 1 through 8, where Jesus is having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. John 3, 1 through 8 says this. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So I want to point out a couple of quick things there. First, we see here that a person must be born again to do two things. They have to be born again to see and to enter the kingdom of God. To see means an understanding and an appreciation. You're not just a spectator, but to enter means to enter into the kingdom and be an actual member of that kingdom with all the privileges that are involved in that. And also we see in this text that to be born again is to be born again of water and of spirit. You know, obviously we're born of water and we're born physically, but to be born of spirit means to be born anew by the Holy Spirit, which really is an amazing reflection on the Old Testament idea. In the Old Testament, water represented purification, to be made clean. And in the New Testament, we see the spirit making us clean and giving us new life. Even consider how this was prophesied in Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26. It says this, this is, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. We already see this idea of being clean, cleansed from our sin and being regenerated, being given a new spirit, a new heart through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. So being born again you know, has a positive and negative element. To be born again means that negatively, the stain of sin is removed from us, and positively, it creates new spiritual life in us. And lastly, in this text, we see that being born again is mysterious, right? You can't see the wind, like Jesus says, but we can see the results of the wind blowing. So similarly, we can't see physically, maybe when someone's born again and becomes a Christian, but we can see the results, right? We can't see their soul and see it brought back to life, you know, but we can see the results in their life. So let's talk for a few minutes just about what we know about regeneration. While it's mysterious, there's some things that we can know. First off, like we've been saying, it's totally a work of God. This is something that we're passive in. We can't choose to be born again. We can respond to the gospel, but God is the one that brings us new spiritual life. This is completely a work of God. Secondly, the exact nature of regeneration is really mysterious to us. You know, it happens instantly in a person's life and it affects all of us. But 
For many people, their story of being born again, you know, looks different. That for some people, you know, when they become a Christian, they make that choice, you know, from their perspective, um, early in childhood. Uh, but for other people, you know, it may be a more significant event later on in life when they realize that they were separated from God, but now they have uh, new life in Christ. But for other people, their experience of realizing they've become a Christian can be even a little bit more harder to pin down than this. I, I like the way that C.S. Lewis talks about his conversion story in Surprised by Joy. He says this, he says, I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step in becoming a Christian was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought nor in great emotion. That for him, this process of finally really taking the last step and truly becoming a Christian and recognizing that God had brought new spiritual life in him, it was something that was kind of mysterious. That He, he recognized that he had become a believer, but he couldn't really pin down exactly how it all uh, went down. That everyone's experience of being born again is different. And so don't feel like you should doubt your salvation just because your salvation experience is different than somebody else's story. There's certain elements that are important that you can express that you repented and believed in some way, but the focus in the end should not be so much on the experience, but the results of it. Do you see the fruit in your life that gives you confidence that you have been born again? Don't worry so much about the exact experience because honestly, everyone's experience can be a little bit different. Another thing about regeneration that we know is that regeneration comes before saving faith on our, on our part. You know, now from our perspective though, it may seem like they're happening at the same time. You know, a person hears the call of the gospel, you know, not just physically but in their heart, and then they respond, but in some kind of mysterious way, God, you know, regenerates our hearts even before we can respond to the gospel, and then we respond in repentance and faith. Don't get too caught up on that, it'll make your head hurt, but there is some element of that there. Another aspect of regeneration is that genuine regeneration must bring about a result that like the wind blows and it creates results just in our lives. Regeneration, being born again, is going to bring some changes and results in life. And this is our response to being saved. You know, Our response to being born again is to live in the way and to see the fruit of being born again. First uh, John makes it very clear of this. It makes it clear that the evidence of being born again is someone who has a pattern in life not toward sin, but toward living righteously, toward having a love for God, toward wanting to overcome the temptation of the world and to flee the things of Satan. Consider even the fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions in Galatians 5. He says the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of us being born again and being, uh, receiving new spiritual life are things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, and self-control. We mentioned that last week, but these are all results and ways that we see that we have been born again. And so for you, maybe this could bring some good questions up. If you know, think about your own spiritual story, you know, how can you trace out the work that God did in your, did in your life? Maybe what was that moment that you finally responded to the gospel, that you repented and believed, even if you didn't use those exact words? And how do you see evidence in your own life of you truly being born again, of receiving new spiritual life? Like I said, everyone's experience is different, don't put so much confidence on the experience, but look at your own life now and see the results. Do you see fruit in your life of you truly following Jesus? Because I think many people in the church get so caught up in, well, did I pray the prayer the right way? Did I feel the right emotions? Did I, did I say the right words? You know, when really, instead of trying to pray a prayer over and over again to make sure we did it right, we should be looking at our own lives right now 
and saying, do I see the fruit? Do I see the work of the Spirit in my life? If that's true, then you become a Christian. The story may not be clear and it may take years for you to get more um, ability to articulate well what God has done in your life. But look at the way that you're believing in Christ today more than just the words of a prayer that you prayed years ago. Because way too many people today put their confidence simply in a prayer without any fruit in their life today versus being less confident of an experience and simply looking at the fruit of their life today. So I hope that's helpful in this conversation, talking about salvation. Uh, So we talked about conversion uh, tonight, talking about repentance and faith and regeneration. Next week, we'll talk about salvation from the sense of that we're justified, that we're being sanctified, and that we will be glorified. So we'll define all those words and talk more about that next week. Uh, But as always, if you have a question, you can text your question to the number here on the screen. We'll do our best to answer it, uh, hopefully in the video next week. Uh, But besides that, you guys have a great one, and we'll see you soon.